Give a hand for Phyllis, your chairman. They've left me up here alone. Aren't y'all glad I worked through all those abandonment issues? <laughs> My name is Stacy, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 25th of 2003. And just like someone says in my home group, I don't always know how to be grateful enough for this time that I've been with you, but I try. I want to thank Tom and Michelle for picking me up at the airport and for taking me around this beautiful area. And just for all of your love and hospitality, thank you. And thank you to anyone who had a hand in this invitation to have me down here. I get the honor to speak sometimes at a lot of conferences, and it's interesting. Um, I was talking with somebody earlier today. It, it, it was really hard for me in the beginning to speak at conferences. It took me a while to get very comfortable with that. I'm very young in sobriety, eight years sober, and I never understood why I was asked and didn't know if I had anything to give and why was I here. And after a lot of praying and talking to the God of my understanding, I've come to uh, some kind of awareness about why I speak at a lot of conferences. The reason why is I believe that God as I know him and who better yet knows me understands that I need a lot of alcoholics around me. A lot. And he also knows that on my salary I cannot travel as often as I get to to be with you. So I get asked to speak, and I get to come here. I believe that if you would fly out a coffee maker, I would be pouring coffee this weekend. But you don't. You fly out speakers, so I've been asked to speak. And that's because Spirit knows that I need you. I needed to hear everything that the speakers have said this weekend and what Robert is going to say in the morning. I need to hear everything that you all have shared with me on the patio, in the hallway, just even overhearing your conversations. You've given me so much. And I say all that to say this. I hope that I never get to a point where I believe that I'm coming to a conference to share something with you, that that's my sole purpose for being here. I'm not saying that I don't have anything to give, but I hope that I never get to a place where I think I'm helping Alcoholics Anonymous more than it helps me. And hopefully, at least in my experience, I believe if I stay with you long enough, I'll stay right-sized. Because that's what y'all do for me. You keep me right-sized. I have a lot of trouble with what's going on between my ears. Uh, the, the obsession to drink has been long gone, but there's still a lot of trouble up here. So, you know, y'all will help me with that. I've had a wonderful time for many reasons. Where I live in San Antonio, Texas, currently it's 107 degrees outside. <laughs> and I've been praying to get up here as fast as I possibly could. <laughs> I woke up this morning, it was 65 degrees. I have posted it on Facebook like crazy. I don't think they want me to come home. They're just like, stop, you can just stay there, that's enough. Because it's been, it's been hot. It's been hot. And y'all just have beautiful weather and your shining faces. I love the enthusiasm here. I've never been to Indiana. This is my first trip, but I've already got friends here. Interestingly enough, a good friend of mine is up here this weekend, Becky, who I've gotten to spend a lot of time with. 
A couple of years back, I was uh, speaking at a conference in Texas, and I met Becky. She was 62 days sober, and she followed me around all weekend and asked me a ton of questions about recovery, about Alcoholics Anonymous, about what we do. And she met me up here when she found out I was speaking. We talked, we walked, she asked me a ton of questions. <laughs> and she recently celebrated three years sober. I don't know why I'm here this weekend, but I believe that if I keep my eyes open, I see a lot of miracles. So thank you, thank you for allowing me to be here. What a privilege. I, I guess I need to get in my lead at some point. Uh, I was uh, born July 16, 1977, to a um, Hispanic mother and a Persian father. I don't know a lot about my history. I don't know a lot about this beginning part of my story. I'm still learning. But here's what I do know. Uh, my father was not an American citizen. He's from Iran, Tehran specifically, and uh, he wasn't an American citizen at the time. For whatever reason, he didn't want my mother to raise me. So they made a decision on the day that I was born in the hospital that they were going to give me up for adoption. I was adopted uh, to a wonderful family in San Antonio. What I know is my adoptive parents, my mother grew up in the disease of alcoholism and never felt loved and never felt enough. And she made this decision because they couldn't have children, they adopted. And they both, both my parents made a conscious decision that they were going to have children, that they were going to tell us that they loved us and they were going to show us that often. And sure enough, they did. So I was given up for adoption at an early age. My biological parents gave me up right there in the hospital and they went home and they told their family that I had died at birth. Now, none of this has anything to do with my being alcoholic. I need to get that out of the way first. I do not blame my alcoholism on anything outside of myself because I know from, thankfully, by being with you long enough, it has nothing to do with the outside. But I do share this story for a pertinent reason. I understand because I've been with you that I have this thing called alcoholic perception. I do not see things right. I see things from this skewed view. The fact of the matter was I had been given an opportunity to live with a family who could love me, who could give me everything that I have today. The feeling was I had been thrown away by the people who should have loved me the most and I never understood what I had done wrong. See, that's how my illness of alcoholism manifests itself. It's all about me. It's all about me. I, I didn't, I wouldn't, what, maybe a day old, but already I've done something wrong. All about me. My first sponsor used to say, it's like it's your parade and you're not even in it. That's just how I think. You know, it's just all about me. So I create these stories in my head about things. And I decided that there's something wrong with me. Something maybe even bad. And I'm just not enough. And early on I started believing I'm not enough. And if you knew anything about me, you wouldn't like me because I know about me. I don't like me. I started telling a lot of lies very early on. I can't always blame that I'm not feeling enough. Most of the time I like to fabricate stories because I'm very bored with the ordinary. And it just seems like when you lie, things get a little more fascinating. So I'm lying a lot as a young kid. I'm lying so much it's darn near a language. People start finding out that I don't tell the truth. My little school friends start talking. They catch me in all these lies and they don't want to be my friend anymore and I'm just having a hard time, I don't want to go to school anymore, I'm frustrated, I'm restless, I'm irritable, and I'm discontent. And when you're eight years old and you're running the world, it just gets exhausting. 
See, I didn't get a drink till I was 12. I say that jokingly, but also not. I had been restless, irritable, and discontent for quite a while. And I was not feeling well. And I didn't find the magic of alcohol until 12. Now, I made a conscious decision to drink. I have to tell you that. I saw what alcohol did to some of the people that would come to my parents' house. My parents were not drinkers. But they had some parties at the house, and I saw the way alcohol changed the mood. It did this magical thing for the people that drank enough of it, and I couldn't wait to do that. And at 12 years old, I got into my parents' liquor cabinet. I took some alcohol to middle school with me, had my first drink, and my first drunk alone, and simultaneously. Because like in Texas, I believe in getting it done. And when I had that first drink and that first drunk, I don't have to explain to a lot of the people in this room what that did for me. And what it did for me is it, it gave me all of those promises that were read at the beginning of this, this meeting. I began to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I no longer regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I can comprehend the word serenity and I know peace. Alcohol switches that magic switch in my head that tells me that I do not care about what you think. I don't care about what's happening in front of me. I don't care about anything when I'm drinking. And that's all I've ever wanted to feel because when I'm focused, when I'm sober, I'm worried about everything. How do I look? What does it feel like? What do you think about me? What are you thinking about me right now? All of that stuff is just going on in this crazy mind of mine. And when I drink enough alcohol, all of a sudden it just quiets down. And so I got that. I got that gift. And when I got that gift, I started making decisions that I was going to do this for as long as I could and as hard as I could. And I did. I pursued alcohol into the gates of insanity and almost death. Now, I was 12 when I had my first drink, and I didn't get sober until I was 25. I sobered up at age 25, like your speaker earlier. And when I came to you, it was time. Just like when I took that first drink, it was time. I believe some people go postal, I drank. When I came to you, it was time. When I came to you, they told me that I would live maybe another three years, and I believed them. When I came to you, Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a feeling of worthlessness, guilt, and shame like I could not describe. I couldn't look you in the face. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had been arrested several times. I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you've been arrested more than three times, all you have to say is several. <laughs> I've been arrested several times. I've also been institutionalized several times. I don't know what it is about the dark side of life. You know, and Joe touched on it earlier today, you brought me back. You brought me back. I love institutions. I love jails. I love the way they smell. I feel comfortable in those places. Y'all talk about incomprehensible demoralization. I don't know what that is incomprehensible demoralization. I lived there one day at a time. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal. When I came to you, I had given a lot of things away behind getting drunk. It's a no-brainer for me. Go to school or get drunk, I got drunk. When I came to you, I had been kicked out of three schools, three universities, for many different reasons. Went to my first university at 17 years old. That's nothing to be proud of. I graduated high school, the fourth quarter of the class. Got accepted to Kansas City Art Institute in Kansas City, Missouri. If ever there was a time when straightening up and flying right would have been the deal, this would have been the time. 
because it was such an honor and a privilege to go to that school, and I knew that. I knew that I was with people who would give me an advancement in, my, in, in what I wanted to do, which was art. But I did not last at that school one semester. Like Bill talks about in his story, alcohol caught up with me faster than I caught up with any degree. I was sent home in the first semester, got drunk in front of the administration, and they pulled that scholarship. They had had enough of me, and they sent me home. And my parents asked me what happened. I said, I made a mistake. I drank too much, and I will not do that again. No clue that I'm in trouble with alcohol. Long story short, I come home. I'm 17 years old. I've got no money. I've got no direction in life. I'm full of fear. That's the deep undercurrent of my being. I don't like to be afraid, and I don't like to be without any money, without some way that I can take care of myself. I can give you a lot of excuses, but long story short, when I was 17 years old under a fake ID, I got into the topless bar industry. I got out at 25. I got sober at 25. So now you get a picture of who walked in the rooms when I came in. No tools for living, in and out institutions, never worked a real job when I came here. But y'all loved me in spite of all of that. See, what I loved the most about that business is that they let me drink. They let me drink. And I believe that the more I drank, the funnier I was. And the cuter. You know, I don't talk negatively about that business. I know there are women that, that work in that business and they do the right thing. They pay their bills. They go to school. They do the right thing. What I'm going to tell you is I'm not that kind of woman. I'm an alcoholic. I wreck shop. You give me what I think is a little bit of money, a little bit of power, I become a tornado roaring through the lives of others. I was a brat. I was a brat. I had a lot of money at a very young age, and I thought you couldn't touch me. And I used that money to build a wall around me so I didn't have to look at me and the life that I had lived and the way I was causing harm to all those around me. We talk about those seven things in the fourth step, self-esteem, pride, ambitions, personal relations, sex relations, pocketbook, all of those things, security. In the beginning, that business catered to all of those things. But towards the end, not the business, but I robbed me of every bit of dignity and self-respect that I had as a woman. Because I will trade that even to get loaded. No clue about being in relationships. I'm a little bit of a hostage taker by trade. Any other hostage takers? If you don't know what that is, I'll try to explain it. See, here's the thing. I feel like if we talk for 30 minutes and it goes well, we're in love, baby. You know, and I, I find soulmates, you know. I find soulmates. It's like, he likes chocolate ice cream, I like chocolate ice cream. It was a God thing. So, I'm working in the business and I meet this old boy. And he was a DJ at the club that I worked at. And after getting to talk to him for a little while, we talked for 30 minutes. I found out some things. I found out that he talked like I did, he drank like I did, and he lied like I did. And ladies, what do you do with a prize like that? You get your hands on him. You don't want your friends to get him. So I got my claws in that old boy. You know, because when you meet me for the first time, you're not meeting me. You're meeting my representative. You know. 
like meeting my lawyer. I'm just like, hi, how are you? Very intelligent, very bright, promising future. Good credit. All my teeth, you know. Um, but give it about two months and it's like, rare, get away from me. And they never know what hit them, you know. They never know what hit him. So I got my claws in this old boy, and, you know, we talked. It went well. I moved in right away. You can let your imagination go as far as you want to about what it's like with two people in active, untreated alcoholism. A friend of mine says this, and I'll quote her, Our love was so big, we had to take it outside. <laughs> Did wonders for the neighborhood. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. That relationship lasted for a while, and I'll explain the, the principle behind longevity in this relationship. The only reason we stayed together as long as we did is because both of us swore that we were going to leave each other once we got sober. <laughs> and that never happened. I was 21 years old when I became pregnant for the first time. And I know that most women, when they find out that they're pregnant, they're excited. They feel the movement of the baby in their stomach and they're happy. That was not my experience. My experience was that um, I knew I couldn't stay sober for nine months. And I didn't want that child to have a mother like me. And I didn't know what I could do about that. But I am an actress by trade and a liar. And I put on my smiling face and I said, baby, we're pregnant. And I'm going to clean up my act and I'm going to do the right thing. And I proceeded to detox myself. Everything went well, went well for a while, but I was towards the end of my first trimester when I crawled into the bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning and drank two bottles of NyQuil because that obsession was just too powerful. Even the desire to do right was not strong enough. And I got sick. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bathtub crying because I did not have any more alcohol and I knew that the gig was up. I made a decision not to have that child. And at this point in my story, he was done with me. And I was done with him. The last thing I ever heard about that old boy, I was three and a half years sober. He had drank again after his new wife had a baby. And he crashed his motorcycle on I-10 in San Antonio. I know this disease takes the best of us. I pray about that all the time. So we didn't make it. I, uh, I like to tell a few stories back in the day because, um, well, I like them. No, I do. I like these stories, and I like them for a reason. It reminds me of who I was before I came to you because how soon I forget. But more importantly, it reminds me of who I can be if I choose to leave you because, after all, I only have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I'm an alcoholic. I have this great fear that it's me against the world and I don't measure up. I never can measure up and I don't know how to deal with those feelings. So I drink. And then I have a second tool for living, which is I like to act real tough. I don't know if there's any other tough guys in here, but I like to act real bad. Because I don't want you to confront me. I don't want you to know that I feel weak inside, that I feel inadequate. So I act real tough. One day I'm out on the freeway driving and drinking, and long story short, I plowed into an on-duty ambulance. I know. <laughs> but this is our story, guys. 
They weren't happy about it. So I pull over on the side of the freeway, and I'm just like, oh, God. See, now, I don't like to look stupid, which is really hard to do when you just hit an on-duty ambulance. So here it comes. The EMT comes and knocks on my window. And here's me without you. I roll down the window, and I said, what? He said, ma'am, do you realize you just plowed into an on-duty ambulance? I said, yeah, I know. What? What? Now, I can't act bad in the car. I get out of the car, and I'm screaming at this guy. Now, mind you, I hit him, but I'm not letting it go. They call the police. I go to jail on hitting a public vehicle. Gradually, things get worse. Used to have a little bit of an anger problem. I know it's shocking. I had a little bit of an anger problem. And I got in trouble at the club all the time, you know, for throwing drinks on people and for kicking them. They were disrespectful to me. And as a woman of dignity, I thought I should let them know I didn't appreciate that. So, so I had let them know what I thought. You know, I'd share my feelings with them. And my boss really got tired of that. And they found this correlation between my little temper tantrums and my drinking. So... They banned me from drinking. That's the point where y'all are supposed to go, oh. Yeah, see, I haven't been to Al-Anon yet, but I already know. You don't take alcohol away from an alcoholic, you know. And I proceed to tell them that. I'm like, y'all can't expect me to do this and not drink. How am I supposed to do this and not drink? Well, they did it. And I started finding that cunning, baffling, and powerful feature of alcoholism as I know it. The unmanageability for me exists inside of me. It's that internal condition. When I don't have any alcohol in my system, everything gets very, very dull and very ugly very fast. And that knot in my stomach gets so tight, I cannot breathe. And I can only do so well with that for only a certain period of time. So because they wouldn't let me drink at the job anymore... I started finding these outside issues. I believe in singleness of purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. I will show my respect. But I got to tell you something about outside issues. When I found those, you know, when they put pills in my hand, I don't ever ask, you know, what's this going to do to me? I'm not a complicated kind of girl, okay? I don't like to make things difficult. So I don't ask. Good thing it wasn't X-Lax. <laughs> I just got a horrible visual. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm digressing. Okay, I'm back now. Um, so, one night I couldn't get these normal outside issues that I get, so I got these other outside issues. Okay. And uh, I took a bunch of stuff. The room started spinning. I knew I had to go, and I left the club that night, and that's all I remember. I woke up that Whenever, whenever I woke up, I woke up and I looked around and I saw people standing over me with surgical masks on and they're holding me down and I'm asking them what happened. More importantly, who did I hit? And they said, ma'am, we cannot tell you anything. All we can tell you is that the police are outside waiting for you and you need to check in with them when you leave. Now, I did not check in with the police that night when I left the hospital, so at this point, I'm on the run. Gradually, things get worse. I'm in and out of jails. I'm in and out of institutions. Sometimes I'm going to nut houses for drinking. Sometimes for not drinking. What is wrong with me? 
I'm taking all these pills. They're giving me all these diagnoses. They're giving me these pills. I'm walking around with a pill box the size of my home group's chip box. <laughs> and I don't know if you've been on these kind of pills before, these psychotropic meds, but, you know, some of them are kind of strong. And they just kind of let you know when you're going to fall asleep, which is real cute when you're trying to make money. You know, I'm just, oh, yeah, I'm real pretty. And, you know. and I would be eating a sandwich, and I'd just kind of nod off. So all I'm doing at this point in my story is I'm eating and I'm sleeping. And I'm not sure which is going to happen. Just kind of getting up, going to eat, going to sleep. And um, I'm gaining a bunch of weight. And it's taking too much energy to shower and change my clothes. It was not a pretty sight. You know, I was not looking cute, okay? And this is how I came into AA, you know. But um, what happened to me at this point is I become unemployable for the kind of work that I do. And I couldn't work there anymore. So I did what a woman like me does when I'm full of fear and I don't know how to take care of myself and I'm afraid that I won't make it. I got me another hostage almost said boyfriend. I got me another hostage. Um, I set the deal up. I set the deal up. Before I even talk about this part of my story, I want to tell you that if you're new in here and you don't understand why we're laughing at things that maybe you don't think is funny, I need you to know that I understand that. When I came to this program, none of this was funny. Oh, it was not funny. But what y'all have taught me, because I've been with you long enough, is that you cannot laugh about something that has not healed. And if it can heal for one of us, it can heal for all of us. Please keep coming back. I'm telling you stories that I'm telling you up here because they no longer own me today. I set this deal up. I had this friend that I knew that liked me, and I set up the deal. I said, look, you like me. I think I can like you. The sacrifices we have to make. I'm going to move in with you. You're going to work and take care of me. And I'll be good. Two out of three happened. Just saying. It all ended for me one more time going to University Hospital, which is our county hospital in San Antonio, Texas. I was transported there by EMS dead on arrival. I need to tell you that I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous because of the consequences of my drinking. Like I told you, consequences mean nothing to a girl like me. I live there one day at a time. It's always demoralizing the first time you have to do something, the first time you get arrested, the first time you get committed to the nut house, the first time one of them leaves. It's always easier the second time. Which is why I remember to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous and stay in my seat and be counted because I remember what I was doing before I came to you, and I know it will be easier the second time. I must not leave you. So I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous because of my consequences. I'll explain to you why I came. I'm in the hospital. Obviously, I didn't die. Uh, but it was a very interesting experience this time. See, this is not new to me. I've been to county hospital. I've woke up in county hospital before. This is not brand new. MHMR was standing there when I woke up. Now I'll tell you who they are. You may, have, uh, you may have an organization like this here in Indiana. If you ever have to get involuntarily committed to an institution, 
MHMR sends a little assessor out there to ask you a bunch of questions, and then they take that to a judge, and the judge signs the orders, and you're going. And I know MHMR. I've dealt with these people before. I know about MHMR. I remember that night, the lady was standing there with a box, and she's holding up bottles, and she's saying, this was bought this morning, this was bought yesterday, this was refilled this morning, this was refilled this morning. You took it all. Are you telling me you weren't trying to kill yourself? Now, apparently, they were trying to have me committed on a suicide attempt. But I did not try to kill myself. I drank too much. The book talks about a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. See, in the beginning of my drinking, I was getting that sense of ease and comfort. I told you that switch would flip in my head and I didn't care. I found that spiritual principle of whatever when I drank. But towards the end of my drinking, that wasn't happening. I was restless, irritable, discontent, and drunk. And if you've ever been at that place when the only solution that you have to life's problems no longer works. I got news for you. It will never work again. You better find a new way to live. That's what they told me. Restless, irritable, discontent, and drunk. My solution had stopped working. There wasn't enough alcohol or pills in that box that was going to fix this hole that had grown inside of me. And I remember yelling at her and saying over and over and over again, look, lady, I was just trying to feel better. I was just trying to feel better. Will you just leave me alone? You know, and, and all of the MHMR team was there, and I was telling them, just leave me alone. And I looked to the right, and my father is standing there. Now, I did what I thought was a good job at keeping them out of the loop, at living this double life that we have to live to drink the way we do, but this time I was caught, and I remember looking at him and saying over and over and over again, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I never wanted you to see this. He said to me, Stacy, I'm sorry because I cannot help you. And he walked out of the room. My father was on the board of that hospital. I will never know what that experience was like for him. I would love to tell you that as demoralizing as that was for me, that, was the, that that was the last time I ever took a drink, but that is not the truth. I drank until I went to a treatment center. I am the product of an intervention, but not like the ones you see on TV. My mother had been going to Al-Anon. And if you are in this room and you are in Al-Anon, I need to tell you that I love you. And thank you for saving my mother's life and for saving mine. She walked into my hospital room and she said, you get some help or we're prepared to walk away from you. And I believed that the spirit of Al-Anon was with her because for the first time, I believed her. April 25th of 2003, I was driven up to a treatment center in the Hill Country in Texas. That is my sobriety date. The treatment center did their job. They separated me from alcohol for the last time. If you're anything like me, things don't get better. Things got worse. I didn't have the solution in place yet, and I also didn't have my solution and I was slowly going insane. But they started talking to me about alcoholism. Not the way that you talk to me, but they opened a door for me. And the door that they opened was a door in my mind that for an alcoholic of my type, the only solution would be Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And they said, when you get out of treatment, do not go on vacation. Do not go get you another boyfriend. That's okay. I already had three at the treatment center. But um, <laughs> you said if, we, if you want what we have. Anyway. Um, I guess that's not what you meant. Um, they said, don't get a boyfriend. Don't go on vacation. Go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, get you a sponsor, and start working the steps like your life depends on it, because clearly it does. They also suggested that I go to a halfway house. Now, when you got nowhere to live, great idea. So I went to this halfway house, and it was the most interesting experience of my life. Not because of them, but because of me. See, I don't know about any other drunks in here, but I don't know how to do daily things like clean the house, clean the bathtub, do the dishes. I didn't, you know, somehow they got past me, okay? So they had to teach me how to mop, y'all. And if there are any sponsors in here, which I know there are this weekend, you'll appreciate this. <sighs> they put the mop in my hand and they said, okay, Stacy, now put some soap on it and some water. Now move the mop to the left. Now move it back to the right. I'm up there mopping in stiletto heels. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> but I know how to mop today. I showed up to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the first night I got out of treatment because that's what they told me to do and I didn't have enough sense to think otherwise. My first home group was the world-famous 2211 group in Kerrville, Texas. And they just loved me. They just loved me. I met the woman who was to become my idol in sobriety, Gail S. from Kerrville, Texas who got sober out in Tyler, Texas. She just celebrated 31 years in May, her and her husband. She's three more days sober, whether you ask her or not, she'll tell you. Um, but Gail is my idol. She still is my idol today. I still talk a lot about Gail. And ladies or guys, I hope you have an idol in your group in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope there is someone that you strive to be like, someone who has everything that you want. That was Gail for me. She was everything I ever wanted to be most beautiful lady I'd ever met. Her and her husband had been uh, married for 54 years, just most beautiful, radiant lady. And I remember she would walk into my home group, and she just like glowed God, right? And she would see me, and she'd just sort of sashay over to me, and she'd say, baby, let me tell you something. I said, yes, Miss Gale? She said, for God's sake, honey, get your toes done. <laughs> and then she just walked off. I want y'all to know something tonight, Indiana. I have my toes done. <laughs> and that's on a tribute to Gail S., who was everything I've ever wanted to be, and I just didn't know it. Gail is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. She says, I wear my sobriety well. See, I always believed that if I got the outside looking good, somehow the inside would straighten up, and that is just not my experience. Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery is an inside job. To quote my friend Candace from L.A., if you do not go within, you will go without in this program. This is an inside job, baby. Gail was everything that I ever wanted to be and still is. I still talk to her on the phone. I met the woman who was to become my sponsor, Annie M. from Kerrville, Texas, who got sober out in the suburban group of Austin, Texas. I need to tell y'all that I am a product 
of some mean sponsorship. <laughs> Just mean. I don't know if anybody else out there has a mean sponsor. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about Annie. My friend Nancy B. from Denton, Texas gives a great definition of a mean sponsor. She says it's someone who cares more about what you're doing than how you're feeling. That's the kind of sponsorship that I had. I didn't know that you could relapse in this program. And I didn't know that you could say no when they asked you to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous. That was not the breed that I came from. And I didn't have the kind of home group that wanted you to have a year sober before you could start sponsoring or chairing meetings. They said, Stacy, we need you. And they put me to work. And I did everything I could in the, in the home group. That was just the kind of place that I came from. And I needed that. I needed a break from me, you know? And I screwed up. I mean, the treasury got stolen, you know, all kinds of stuff happened. <laughs> but they let me do it. Now, the miracle is I didn't steal it, so hey. So I was a product of mean sponsorship. You know, but here's the thing. I am glad that I had the sponsor that I had. Andy was everything that I needed and didn't know it for so many reasons. You know, one of them is um, when I came into this program, like I said, I gained a lot of weight and I wasn't showering and I wasn't washing my clothes because I didn't know how to do the thing where you turn the thing and just pull it, you know, on the dryer. So I just decided I'm not going to do it. So, um... Anyway, you know, I'm, I'm not looking so good, okay? You know, it is not looking cute up in here. But I was new. So I knew I looked hot, right? I knew I had it going on. I don't have to shower to know that I got it going on, okay? This is a disease of perception. I will see it how I want to see it. For instance, to this day, if I think I need to lose some weight, I will get on the treadmill for 30 minutes, and I will get off, look in the mirror, and I think I've lost 10 pounds. I see it how I want to see it. That's bottom line. So I thought I had it going on. And I was new, and I was on fire, and I was convinced that those old boys were going to appreciate me in their group. And Annie had this way of just puncturing my ego. See, I need a chink in my armor. And Annie could drop those one-liners like it was nobody's business. I don't know where that sponsorship school is that y'all go to. I want to find it because I know that she wrote the book on one-liners one for us egotistical sponsorees. So she dropped these one-liners like, for instance, one time we were in Walmart and we were in that aisle. You know the aisle with the candles with the saints on them? I mean, you know how they look, right? They're real beautiful. They have the light around them. Maybe they're holding the heart of Jesus. And I was looking at them. I was like, hmm, I would look good on one of those saint candles. And he said, yeah, you can be the saint of mental patients and fallen women. <laughs> it's just wrong. I have a friend back home in San Antonio, Cell, who's talking about they're going to make that candle. They said it's going to have purple leopard print on it. They're going to put a stiletto on the altar. That's not funny. Y'all laughing at me. So Annie would always do that stuff, you know. And, and here's the great thing about my sponsor is that um, not only did she show me and demonstrate to me the program of action and recovery, but she also taught me how to live in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is important. Because I have found that when I can live amongst you, I can live out there by applying the very same principles. So Annie taught me how to live, and I'm going to share with you some of the pearls of wisdom that Annie M. gave me. 
I was taught to be on time to the meeting where I come from. That's 15 minutes early. And I was taught to stay late. I was taught to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and not the room. I think that's important. I was taught to talk to the alcoholic women before the meeting and talk to the alcoholic women after the meeting. I remember one time Annie asked me, she said, why are you always talking to the men? I said, because I can't talk to the women. She said, why is that? I said, because they're jealous of me. <laughs> Annie didn't miss a beat. She said, that's a load of crap, Stacy. You're a predator and they can smell it. That's why they don't like you. See, but I need to be told these things. Of and by myself, I cannot see these things. The truth to me is like a shifting shadow. That's why I believe the fifth step is just as important as the fourth. Because I cannot see it on my own. You need to tell me. Please call me on my stuff. Even today, this is life. I don't want to miss the most important part. Annie took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Through all 12 steps. And as that 12-step process took place in my life, what happened to me is what is described in Appendix 2, the back, of, the back of our big book, Spiritual Experience, where it says, the personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism occurred. Here's what I believe. The woman who walked into these rooms on April 25th of 2003 will always drink again. I cannot be her. I don't want to be her. But I can't make that change happen on my own. Joe talked about it earlier. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my troubles. I will not take a fist up here, but what I will tell you is that it just seems like I want my darn way. And I'm rather unprincipled about getting it. I had all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of survival instincts when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Y'all call them character defects. But... Um, <laughs> I did. I mean, I had some, you know, hardcore beliefs when I came here. Like, like I believe, don't ever tell on yourself, don't ever tell on your friends. Wait for the video, you know. Um, and then y'all tell me I got to get rigorously honest. See, I can't do that. I can't cross over and live in a manner by which it takes to stay sober one day at a time. What has to happen to me is the thing that the steps can only do, that no one else no professional, no, uh, no other person who loved me, no supportive friend could do for me. The steps, their job is to shrink my ego down small enough to experience the spirit or have a spiritual experience, however you want to say it. Because I'm taking direction from Annie. I'm watching my mouth. I'm dressing appropriately. I'm being on time to the meeting. But the change ain't taking place but on the outside. I need a change to take place in my heart. And y'all told me that I had to get connected to a power greater than myself if I was ever to have a chance in this. You told me to find a God. See, I was so far removed from anything spiritual when I got here. It says in our literature, to be doomed an alcoholic death or to live life on a spiritual basis are not easy alternatives to face. Boy, do I understand that. Because I was so far removed from a God when I got here. Tell y'all a story. When I was 12 years old, I got committed to my first institution. I was 14 when I got out. So I did some time with them. And I remember when I first got there, I called my parents every day. I said, please come get me. Please come get me. Please come get me. I don't belong here. There are people that like eat checkers and stuff. I don't belong here. <laughs> but they didn't come. 
They did not come. They took the direction of a psychiatrist, and out of sheer desire to help their poor, withered-away kid, they didn't come. And it hit me one day. They're not coming. And so I walked around that place, and something broke inside of me. What I know today is that was my spirit. So one day I'm laying in my hospital bed, wide awake, middle of the night. And guys, I swear to God, I saw an angel standing at the foot of my bed. She was beautiful. She was translucent in a blue dress. Just absolutely amazing. And as I saw her, a peace came over me like I had never experienced before in my life. And I reached out to touch her, and she disappeared. Spiritual experience, you bet. But I made a mistake. I told the psychiatrist about it the next day. <laughs> they raised my medication levels through the roof, y'all. I think it was like a week later. They're like, so, have you seen any angels? I was like, no. She's gone. I learned something from that experience. Don't tell people about stuff like that, you know. Spiritual experience, you bet. Did it keep me sober? Absolutely not. I've had many experiences like that, drunk or sober. But it does not change me. The change that has to take place, that has to take place, is for me to, to be free of that selfishness and self-centeredness. I must or it kills me because it is the root of my troubles. And if that can happen by way of the 12 steps, then I can be free and unburdened from the very thing that caused my alcoholism in the first place, and that is that feeling that it's all about me, that I am separate from you, I am apart from, not a part of, and I get to stay with you. Annie also told me that if I was to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world, not do the opposite, where I live in the world and visit AA when I can, she told me to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world. And she said many miraculous things would happen if, that, if I was willing to do that. She said if I was willing to carry the message at any opportunity that they gave me, be of service to Alcoholics Anonymous, that amazing things would happen in my life in between meetings. And what I'm here to tell you tonight is many amazing things have happened. Remember how I told you all how I, um, I lived in that halfway house? Well, when I was about a year sober, I got to run that halfway house, and I started several others in the Kerrville area for women. I got to teach them how to mop. And when I was two years sober, I went and worked at the Kerrville State Hospital. And when I was three years sober, I went and worked in a treatment center. I used to say that all I have to do is work in Bear County Jail, and I will have worked everywhere I've lived. I love that. I love that. And, you know, Gail used to tell me all the time, Stacy, you can't get to where I am today from where I was on human power alone. I understand that more today than ever. I, um, I got to meet my biological father in sobriety, both my biological parents. I was talking to Joe earlier today. You know, I, I owed these people an amends. They tried to contact me in my life, and I wasn't willing to reciprocate that contact. How do you meet your parents when you're drinking and living the way that I lived? I could not do that. I couldn't do it. But they kept wanting me to. They kept reaching out, and I wouldn't even call back to say, I can't talk to you. I just left them hanging. And at three and a half years sober, after talking with my sponsor, a lot of prayer and consultation, I made the decision to contact my biological parents again. Sometimes in sobriety, we get to walk through our greatest fears. That's why y'all told me to tap into a power greater than myself, so that I could be empowered to do the things that are not humanly possible for someone like me to step into. So I met my biological father, and I used those words that y'all gave me. I said to him all those times 
that you tried to contact me and I didn't respond. It wasn't because of you. It was because of me. I didn't want you to see the way I was living, but I live differently today. And I would be honored to be in a relationship with you. And if there's ever anything I can do to add to your life, please let me know. It has not been easy. I need to tell you that I understand today that my father does not have my tools. Sometimes I believe that he experiences some guilt about the decisions that he made, which he doesn't need to, believe me. But we've worked through that process. I met my father at 31 years old, you know, and we've worked through that process. And what I've learned how to do, because sometimes he won't call me for a while or won't return my calls, and I get it. I totally get it, more than I'd like to, believe me. But I love him for who he is and also for who he's not. Isn't that what y'all did for me? My mother and I have tried very hard. We don't have a relationship at this time. I have tried. I've put my side of the bridge down, but she's not ready yet. And that's okay, because y'all have taught me through the ninth step amends process that timing is everything. I just need to be present and willing, and I certainly am. When I was out there drinking, I did try to get a degree. I went, to, I went to go get an associate's degree from the community college. That was my last college. And um, nine years later, I still didn't have it. As a result of some bizarre events in sobriety, I went back to school. And in 2007, I walked the stage with a bachelor's degree. And this last May, actually two Mays ago, not last May, but the May before, I walked the stage again with a master's degree. Not too bad for a drunk. People ask me all the time, what did you get your degree in? Counseling. And they ask me all the time, what do you do for a living now? I work for MHMR. <laughs> I need to talk about my job for a couple of minutes. Tell you a little bit about what I do. There are many facets to my job. I work on the mental health side. I have a caseload of about 30. Most of my caseload is homeless. They do not come to my office. I go to them. Whether they're in Section 8 projects, whether they're under the bridge, I go to them. I am also a member of the assessment team. Whenever I get a phone call that someone is in a crisis, possible suicide attempt, I go out there and I ask them questions and I get the paperwork signed by the judge. Finally, I'm getting to interview me. There are some other things that I do. Um, whenever someone decompensates in a jail cell, they call me and I get to go out there and screen them. In Bear County Jail, my home away from home, I have now worked everywhere that I've lived. <laughs> Is that not a tribute to Alcoholics Anonymous? And there's one more thing that I do. I get, I get the privilege and the honor of going out to the police academy and teaching crisis intervention training to the cadets. They trust me to teach cops how to deal with the mentally ill. <laughs> so in case y'all are worried, don't worry. I got SAPD straightened out. I got this. I got it. We're good. And it's a great thing for me, because I've got to tell you, I, did not, I was not able to make those amends to all those cops that I mouthed off to. If they don't come to me, I don't know who they are. There's too many. They just all kind of blur. 
But now I get to work with the police, and I get the honor and the privilege of practicing these principles in that affair. I love my job. It is an honor and a privilege to do what I do today. I, um, I was uh, about five years sober when I moved back to San Antonio from Kerrville. I had hit what I thought was a five-year wall. Um, through a series of events, I came to understand that it was not a five-year wall. I had become arrogant again. I'd become arrogant, and um, I was in a crazy place. I'm very grateful through so many experiences y'all taught me that when in doubt, go to one more meeting. Talk to one more person. When I was, um, when I was about uh, 14 months sober, I was sitting down on my couch and I decided to write a suicide letter. Now, I was nowhere near understanding that I had bought that delusion again, that I could wrest happiness and satisfaction out of this world if only I managed well. All I knew is that all hell was breaking loose in my life and I did not have a solution. And y'all had told me that the obsession to drink would be lifted, and it had. I hadn't thought about a drink. But I didn't know how I was going to fix this. So I decided that it was time to exit stage left. And I sat down to write that letter. But I didn't write it. Remember that mean sponsor that I told y'all about? One time I told her that I was going to commit suicide, and she said, Well, that would be a discourtesy to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I never get to do anything. <laughs> so I started to write this note. I thought, well, I better call her. <laughs> so I call her. I say, Annie, I'm thinking about jumping off a bridge here. She said, Really? I said, Yeah. She said, well, that's great, Stacy." I said, what? Excuse me? That's great? She said, well, Stacy, that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You'll want to jump off a bridge before you want to drink. <laughs> and she said something to me that was very pivotal in the beginning of my sobriety. Blew my mind out of the water. She said, now that the obsession to drink is gone, are you willing to learn how to live? Now that God has your drink problem in the palm of his hand, are you willing to give him your romance, your finance, all of those areas of your life that you think you're doing so well? My experience has been that any area of my life that I'm not willing to work this program in is the one that's... And five years sober, I started looking at relationships. I had been in a few, but I was so afraid to be vulnerable in a relationship, to let them know who I was. I still came with those old ideas from that business I was in. Not the fault of the business. I carried them as long as I did. But I had to start looking at them because those very ideas were killing me because I found myself in relationships where I was just so self-sufficient and aloof that they would leave and I would blame them. And so I did another inventory at five years sober. I do regular inventories. But this particular inventory was significant because I started looking at those old ideas and I started being willing to cast them out. And as I, will, as I became willing and ready and made that surrender, some interesting things took place. I was in a conference and I was minding my own business. Yeah, right. I was minding my own business and I met him. I met him. He was um, six foot ten. He was a speaker. He was a pastor and... Um, he was amazing. And we talked for 30 minutes and it went well. 
He was from Davenport, Iowa. And um, we talked on the phone. We exchanged numbers and we talked on the phone. I think that is a great way to start a relationship. Just talk. It's foreign to me. So we're talking and we're flying back and forth to see each other. And we made this decision that we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. Now something like that has never been on my radar before. I always believed that somehow I had lived in such a horrible way before I got sober that I just didn't have the privilege to celebrate, to wear white, if you will. But I had let those old ideas go, and I met him, and he asked me to marry him, and I was willing, and I, and I was excited because I had this new way of looking at things, and it was just amazing. December 22nd of 2008, I was out in Davenport visiting Ed when he had a heart attack and he passed away. And it just rocked my world. I talk about this a lot from the podium for so many reasons. Number one, if you're new in here, I want you to know, the thought to drink never came. The thought to drink never came. He died on a Monday at 9.15, and I was on a plane back to San Antonio that afternoon at 3 o'clock. I couldn't get another flight. And there's, I was in so many airports, and I was just trying to get home, and there were bars in every airport, and the thought to drink never came. Y'all told me. Y'all told me if I found a God of my own that someday there would be a time when the fellowship could not be in my reach. And the only thing that would stand in between me and a drink was God. And I'm grateful that you told me to find one, that you didn't ask me to rely on you. Because that's the only thing that kept me sober that day. I, uh, I get email on my phone. And as I was traveling from, from the Quad Cities to San Antonio, it took me seven hours to get home. But I got emails on my phone from people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, who I didn't even know, from all over the world, from all over the country. Y'all were there. You were there. You got me through that. I was in so much pain, I thought I, I, thought I couldn't take another breath. And y'all were there. You got me through that. I got, I got into San Antonio at 11 o'clock at night, and that mean sponsor was there to pick me up at the airport. And she brought me back to Kerrville where I got sober. And I got around people who had gone through that kind of thing. You know, we're never the first ones to go through anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. And y'all walked me through that time one day at a time. There goes the makeup. Crap. <laughs> I don't care. It used to be a real big deal. So people just surrounded me. Y'all like miracle stories, so I'm going to tell you one. Prior to that time when I was uh, visiting Ed out in Davenport, Iowa, about two weeks before, he was in San Antonio, Texas, visiting me. His last talk was in Texas at the Texoma Group. And he had given me an iPod for Christmas because I wanted one. I wanted one to take on the plane as I went up to see him. And so I downloaded like $100 worth of music on it, and I took it up there with me, and I asked him to plug it into his computer so that he could charge it, and he lost all my music. <laughs> That's not the miracle. <sighs> and he accidentally downloaded some of his talks on my iPod. I said, honey, I have your talks. I have all your talks. I don't need any more of your talks. 
He died on Monday morning at 9.15. At 3 o'clock, I was on a plane, and I put the earphones in my ears. The talk that was on that iPod was his workshop on grief and forgiveness. And I had never heard that talk before. And he mentioned me in that talk, and what he said was this. He said, if I was no longer here, if Stacy and I didn't work out, I know today that we were both present and there were no loose ends. He gave me exactly what I needed. Isn't God amazing? Because that's exactly what I needed. And Ed taught me through that workshop how to say goodbye to him. Because my heart was broken. Isn't God amazing? You can't outgive him. I try. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm too selfish. <laughs> no, really. God is amazing to me. He always has been. Um, I went through a very strange time after that happened. Uh, grief is not a normal thing for me. And um, I made a lot of very poor decisions after Ed died. Uh, it just wasn't normal. No, not a normal experience for me at all. 120 days after Ed's death, I was engaged to be married to someone else because I could not deal with the pain. I do not regret that part of my story. I believe that whether something happens to me when I'm drunk or when I'm sober, it is still of good use. And this, this part of my story has been many times, but I did make some poor choices. At 120 days after his death, I was engaged to be married to someone else, and all hell was breaking loose in my life. But I got through that time. I had to do one more surrender and to move into acceptance, not process, not walk through, but move into acceptance with the fact that Ed was gone. And I had to come to understand that God had put a man in my life to teach me that it was okay to love someone. I trusted him with everybody. And I will be forever grateful for that for the rest of my life. And that old boy that I got engaged to be married to, well, we made the decision both simultaneously that that was not the right thing to do. He survived that experience. He's seeing a psychiatrist. <laughs> He's not getting help. They're dating, okay? I mean, you know, Joe, I, I, said, I said to my girlfriends, I don't know how he's going to make it without all this, you know. But uh, he's doing fine. He's doing great. They're doing great. So he made it out of that, and so did I. I walked through that sober and with a deeper surrender, which was necessary, necessary for me to stay. I can tell you that um, I am in a relationship today. I met a man... Um, almost a year after, after Ed had died and I got through that grief experience, I met someone. I'm in a relationship today with an amazing man uh, who is an Alcoholics Anonymous, also a pastor. I don't pick him like that, I'm just saying, you know. I mean, it's a little ironic given where I used to be. But, um, you know, we're, we're happy and he is like my best friend and I'm very just excited about the future, excited about what spirit has for me next. I have not been... Um, Locked up in an institution in over eight years. Now, I haven't been arrested in about seven and a half. And, um, I'm going to tell you why. Remember how I told you all that I didn't check in with the police that night? Well, here's the great thing about the state of Texas. You don't have to ask them what you can do to make it right. They'll come tell you. Oh, they came and got me. Actually, they didn't come and get me. They called me. They said, we, we know where you are. Turn yourself in or we're coming to get you. I said, I'm on my way. And I didn't know what I had done. I didn't know if they were going to close that door forever. 
and I took that to my group in Alcoholics Anonymous, and y'all told me that if I wanted victory over alcohol, I could not dodge the police anymore. So I turned myself in, not knowing if they were going to close that door forever. Turns out I hit a piece of the freeway. They charged me with a DWI, an evading arrest charge, and I was put on a deferred adjudication probation where if I was to screw up at all, even spit in the direction of the police station, I was going to do 5 to 10. Now, miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is I didn't realize I was off, I was off probation for like two months. I was like, what month is it? It's December. <laughs> I'm off probation. <laughs> so... It is just another day. It is one day at a time. It really is. It doesn't matter. On paper or off paper means nothing to me. What matters to me is I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing. What matters is I stand up in my home group and I am counted. My home group is the Tuesday night big book study in San Antonio, Texas. If you're ever there on a Tuesday night, don't come see us. We're trying to keep our group small. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Actually, we have a big group, and we're excited about new people coming in. We go through the big book, first 164 pages, including Dr. Bob's story, and when that ends, we go through it again and again and again. And some of those old boys have been sober forever, and they're going to say the same thing this time next year, but I show up, and I stand up, and I'm counted for, and I wait for new women to walk in the door. I do get the privilege of working with a lot of new women, and I'm very excited about that. They keep it brand new for me. My house was robbed. Um, Oh, about two or three years ago, my little apartment got robbed, and it's funny because I walked in and I saw that the door had been kicked in, and they took everything that was, you know, worth anything in my apartment, and I was a poor college student and knew I couldn't replace those items. But my first thought was, you know, I'm an ex-thief. So I was like, well, now I know how that feels. And I was sitting there with the police, and I'm waiting for um, CSI to come and fingerprint. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking, oh, geez, you know, this is not cool. Because after a while, you know, the first gratitude goes away and you're kind of mad about it and it starts building up momentum. And I'm starting to get irritated because I realize I'm not getting my stuff back and they ain't finding nobody. So, um, you know, I'm uh, sitting there and, uh, and I'm waiting and I get, a, I get a message on Facebook and it's a woman who says, you don't know me, but we have a mutual friend. I had a member of my home group that was, that was overseas serving in Iraq and we kept in contact with him because he couldn't make meetings. She said, um, Raul gave me your phone number or your, mess, your uh, Facebook information and I was wondering if you could help me. I'm in San Antonio, Texas. I have seven days sober. Can you help me? And I sent a message back, and I said, please call me right now. And I gave her my phone number. We talked on the phone while we were waiting on CSI to get there. And I'm just like, so what's going on? Tell me about it. Let's talk. When can we meet? Can we meet tonight? We made a coffee date, and by the time I hung up the phone, the cop is telling me, I'm so sorry. CSI's not coming. There's nothing we can do. I said, hey, it's only stuff. Alcoholics Anonymous comes in for me time and time again. When I'm thinking about them, I cannot think about me. And that's exactly where I need to be to be I have learned through the um, finding out about my, my family and my past. Like I said, I still know very, very, very little. But here is what my perception is today on all of this. My parents made a very difficult choice to give me up for adoption. And it put a hole in their heart. They did the hardest thing that they ever had to do, and that was let someone else raise. And that my life has been one big These people who love me so much. When I go, you know, and my parents, my adoptive parents have been divorced and they've remarried. When I went to my graduation, I was the only person there with two mothers and four fathers. <laughs> 
And I used to be embarrassed about that. I used to be ashamed. I thought, I come from the screwiest family in the world. But I sat down with my sponsor and I shared that because it was a painful thing for me. And she said to me, all of those men care about you and those two women. You are the luckiest woman on the planet to have all of those parents that are involved in your life. And I stopped hurting once she said that. You all have given me a new story. You've given me a new way to see my life. To resolve all the hurt and pain that's been killing me all this time. And I can never show my gratitude enough to you. If you're new in here, I want to leave you with this. This goes far beyond not drinking one day at a time. That is only the first miracle. There are so many others. These past eight years have not been the best years of my life. Big Book tells me the most satisfactory of my years of my existence lie ahead. So I hang in for that, and I hope I can always stay with you. I want to close with some song lyrics. I promise I'm not going to sing, Chuck. <laughs> I'm not going to sing. I will not put you through that pain. But here's the thing. I will quote the song lyrics. I don't know about anybody else, but I, you know, I love music. I listen to hip-hop music. Okay. That's usually when it gets quiet. That's all right. Y'all are like, well, she had us until she mentioned the hip-hop. I don't know. That's okay. I love hip-hop music. I just love it. I'm crazy about it. And there's a song by DMX, and I'm going to quote the lyrics to you. And it's in the form of a prayer, so I know y'all will appreciate it. Because it describes what my life is like today, thanks to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it goes something like this. It says, God, it is you who wakes me up every day. I am forever grateful for your love. This is why I pray. You let me touch so many people, and it's all for the good. I influenced so many children, I never thought that I would. And I couldn't take credit for the love that they get, because it all comes from you, God. I'm just the one that's giving it. And when it seems like the pressure gets to be too much, I take time out and pray and ask that you be my crutch. God, I am not perfect by a long shot, I confess to you daily. But I work harder every day, and I hope that you hear me. In my heart, I mean well. But if you'll help me to grow, then what I have in my heart will begin to show. And when I get going, I'm not looking back for nothing. Because I will know where I'm headed, and I'm so tired of the suffering. I stand before you, a weakened version of your reflection, begging for direction for my soul needs resurrection. I don't deserve what you've given me, but you never took it from me because I am grateful and I use it and I do not worship money. If what you want from me is to bring your children to you, my regret is only having one life to do it and it's two. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.